Welcome and thank you for joining us for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour, the official podcast of the National Association of Health Underwriters. Before we begin, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. The podcast is distributed on these platforms every Friday and is included in the NAHU's weekly member-exclusive health policy newsletter, The Washington Update, giving you a head start on your weekly healthcare happy hour. We're now less than 100 days until the 2022 midterm elections in November. With every House seat contested and some key Senate seats contested as well, this year's midterms are as important as ever. In June, we discussed a host of primary elections of primary elections that helped shape what November's elections will look like. This week, there were more primaries across six different states. On this week's episode of the Healthcare Happy Hour, NAHU's Marcy Buckner and Chris Hartman are here to break down some of the most competitive primary results that we saw this week, as well as to provide an overview of what could happen come November. So, as mentioned, there were key primaries this week on Tuesday. In Arizona, Democratic Senator Mark Kelly is up for re-election, and while he ran unopposed in his primary, the GOP primary was hotly contested. So, what ended up happening there in Arizona? So we saw Blake Masters won the Arizona GOP primary. He is a venture capitalist that was supported by former President Trump. And we're going to talk a little bit about where we saw Trump endorsed candidates winning and where we didn't. But I want to kind of remind people when we're talking about these primaries, remember, people are running within their parties. So we're going to be looking at some of the, the fractioning within each party. We're not having the parties run against each other right now. That is for the, the final election. And also remember during the primaries, we often see people running very far out. So Democrats leaning very far out on the liberal side and Republicans leaning very far on the conservative side to really get their base to turn up. And then oftentimes we see them coming back towards the middle as we head towards the general election. Chris, I'll let you talk about Senator Kelly from the Democratic side and how important that seat is and what you see could possibly happen with now the Republican challenger being Blake Masters. Yeah, so Arizona is going to be one of the more competitive races this year. And Senator Kelly has only been in two years because he won in a special election for replacing the late Senator McCain. And so he is back on the ballot this November. There was no primary on the Democratic side. On the Republican side, there was a very contested primary with Trump getting involved. In general, there were a lot of very competitive primaries in on Arizona on the Republican side for Secretary of State and for many other positions that Trump did get involved in because you have to remember Arizona was one of those states that was very highly competitive in the last general election for president and one of the states that was contested and Trump and others contest the actual vote count in the state. You remember recently they've even done audits on the state ballots afterwards. So all of that is taking place in Arizona. That's part of the context in the primary. Uh, You saw, for example, the Republican nominee who just won for secretary of state in Arizona still opposes what happened in the last election, saying Donald Trump won the state and he would not have certified the election. 
So all of that is what's going into this election. It is going to be a very competitive state. Historically, Arizona is a very Republican state. Maricopa County, which includes Phoenix and Scottsdale and others, is the largest county in the state and uh, has been historically run by Republicans. Other than the very recent history of Kristen Cinema, the senators have always been Republican in the state. So I think this is one of the Republicans' best pickup opportunities is to take out two-year Senator Mark Kelly, former astronaut. Mark Kelly is running, obviously going to run an aggressive campaign this fall. But I think you're going to see a lot of money being poured in the state up and down the ballot because so many of these races for governor, for secretary of state, for the Senate seat are going to be so tight in Arizona. And there are multiple open House seats in Arizona and competitor general election seats because the new congressional district lines look so different in Arizona than they did the last time around. The commission drew the lines, drew them very different than Lee than before. And so you're going to see very many competitive House races going on in the state of Arizona come this November. And I think we've really seen a shift in the the type of Republicans that are either coming out to vote or just a shift in the psyche of Arizonans, because where we see, of course, in the past, we had the McCain Republicans in Arizona for several decades. And now with Trump-endorsed Republican Senate challenger to Senator Mark Kelly, we also have on the ballot with winners on the primary. Well, first, the the governor is too close to call on the Republican primary side, but it is between Trump-supported Lake and Taylor Robeson, who is supported by Vice President Pence. We want to add a little bit more drama into things. Robeson was expected to win, but many of the same-day voters that came out, so not the early voters, the voters that came out to the polls yesterday and voted in person, were increasingly on the side of Trump-supported candidates, including Lake for the governor's seat, who at the time of this recording is up 2% over Robeson. So we'll continue to follow that. But also on the ballot, we're looking at the types of Republicans who won their primaries, the attorney general who won the primary, as well as the secretary of state that Chris mentioned earlier, both are Trump-supported candidates. So we're seeing a shift in the type of Republicans that are winning their primaries and going to the general elections in Arizona. And like Chris mentioned, this is very interesting and of note that so many Trump-supported candidates are winning their primaries in Arizona because Arizona was targeted for the legitimacy of the general election in 2020. And now we're seeing many of the candidates that won their primaries were supportive of challenging that legitimacy. So it's it's going to be very interesting to see how this colors the general election and also how it changes the Republican Party in Arizona. Meanwhile, up in Washington state, House primaries were held for the state's 10 districts. One of the most competitive House districts is Washington's 8th Congressional District, which is currently held by Democratic Congresswoman Kim Schreier. A crowded primary took place on Tuesday, where the top two candidates advanced to the general election. So what did we see happen there? Yeah, Washington state is a state that's going to take some time to continue to count the ballots. There are three competitive Republicans running in it. One is actually the son of the former congresswoman who represented that district, Jennifer Dunn. Her son is one of the candidates who is run there. 
this district, regardless of who the Republicans nominate, is going to be very competitive in November. Like I mentioned, Jennifer Dunn used to represent this. She's a Republican. This seat is currently in the hands of the Democrats. And it's probably the most, currently the most competitive state, a seat in the state of Washington. There were multiple primaries going on, including for Senate against Patty Murray. And the way Washington works is everybody runs against each other. So all the names are in together, regardless of if they're Republican or Democrat or Green or Libertarian. And then you take the top two. So obviously, Kim Schreier, the, the current congresswoman, is in first, and she will be in the general election. And then we are really looking amongst these three Republicans to see who ends up as essentially the Republican nominee or going on in, in the general election. One of the things about these, they call them jungle primaries, is technically you could end up with a general election between two Republicans or two Democrats going on. But in really competitive congressional districts where the parties are fairly equally strong, generally speaking, you see a Democrat and Republican getting through. This is one election that is going to be down to the wire also in November. And so we expect this one to take quite some time. Washington is also a state that votes by mail-in ballots. So it really slows down the counting process quite a bit to get results in the state of Washington. And then over in Missouri, I do want to note this. I know most media outlets were focusing on the very odd endorsement President Trump made to Eric in the Senate race, despite the fact that there were technically three Eric's running two Eric's that were really competitive for the seat and had a chance of winning. And it was Eric Schmidt who did end up winning that Senate Republican primary. But we want to talk about one of the other people in the race who was Representative Billy Long. Representative Billy Long gave up his seat in the House and was not running for re-election there in order to run for the Senate seat. And now with his loss in the primary, we will not be seeing Billy Long in the congressional makeup next session. The reason why we are mentioning this now is because Representative Long has been a huge champion of NEHU over the years, oftentimes sponsoring as a as a lead sponsor some of our most important legislation. He has also spoken at Capitol Conference several times, has been a champion of employer-sponsored coverage, has really supported agents and brokers in the market, and we will truly miss his support in Congress, but we are hoping to continue to work with him in any of his future endeavors in politics or outside in the business world. So... Now that we've looked at some of the most competitive primaries that happened this week, let's look at the midterms a little more broadly. With margins so close for control of Congress, there's a lot on the line in November for the general election. Of course, a key factor in trying to figure out which party will gain the most seats is voter turnout. There are many questions around how Democrats and Republicans will turn out to vote this year. So from what you've seen so far, in your opinions, what sort of turnout do you expect from voters of either party? And what issues do you think will be at the forefront of their minds when November rolls around? The statistics that we have from the primaries earlier this year was that there was a 4% decrease in Democratic turnout, but a 26% increase in Republican turnout for the primaries. Now, remember, the last round of primaries um, where we had several states voting was earlier in June. 
a lot has happened since then. It's been almost two months. We've had the Dobbs decision. We've had an increase in gun violence across the country. So there are different issues. Well, those issues are any different than we had before, but there's been an increase in tension on those issues that may change the way that we see the statistics for turnout, even for this primary in August. So we are waiting for the statistics of this primary to see if those numbers have changed. But I think when we look at some of the different states, it's it's really interesting and it makes it almost even harder to determine exactly what's what's causing voter turnout. I'm going to use Kansas as an example. So Kansas had on their ballot a constitutional change that would ensure the right to abortion in their state. This was actually an incident where we saw a larger primary turnout for the midterm primary in 2022 than we saw for the presidential primary in 2020. And we do think this was largely spawned by that ballot initiative for trying to preserve the state constitutional right to abortion. That really got people out for the primaries more so than they did for the presidential primaries. But now that that will be off the ballot for the general election, that it's left to see whether those folks are going to continue to turn out and vote in November. This was very controversial, as you can imagine. Kansas is a very red state. And the ballot initiative on the primary, voters voted to be able to preserve the right to an abortion in their state constitution. Of course, this was put on the ballot as a result of the Dobbs Supreme Court case that allowed states to determine what they were going to allow within their borders when it came to the termination of of pregnancy or, or similar services. Now, we say that, and that typically would indicate a very large Democratic turnout. But then when we look at other indicators in Kansas, the voters, the Democratic governor very easily won her primary. That wasn't very surprising. She's an incumbent. But then when we look at the primary on the Republican side, the Republican primary was won by a Trump-supported Republican. So very far right, which shows that there was a lot of voters on the far right that turned out despite Kansas then also voting to retain the the right to abortion. So it shows really a split in turnout and dynamics that I think we are still going to need some data and numbers to be able to really crunch. So when it comes to the midterm elections, I think there's something to keep in mind. There's always going to be lower turnout in a midterm election versus a presidential election year. Presidential election years have the highest turnout uh, in the United States, midterms much lower, and then some of your local elections even less. For a presidential election, we find turnout in the 50%. Midterms tend to be in the 40s or 30s. So it is a much lower turnout. Now, this can vary greatly by states. You get some high participation states like Minnesota that literally in the presidential election, they had 90% turnout. So the culturally, some of the things change drastically. Other states like Texas are in the low 30s, high 20s for turnout. So when looking at the midterm, I think we just need to look at historical trends. The main thing that you see if you look at midterms versus presidential is the party who has the White House tends to lose the midterm elections. This is true for the last dozen midterm elections. On average, the party in power loses 40 House seats and four Senate seats. This would make it appear that the Democrats are going to do rather poorly in this upcoming midterm election. 
on top of that, put in the issue of inflation, gas prices overall, cost of living that's going on out there. This is the number one issue in every poll that you see about what people's real concerns are is inflation. Now, between now and November, some of those inflation numbers might come down. You, we do see gas prices coming down at all. And then I think that one thing that has particularly changed the turnout and some, even some of the polling numbers we've seen is what Marcy was talking about with the Dobbs decision. You did see a bump up after the Dobbs decision of people who uh, were interested in voting on the Democratic side who might have not voted otherwise in the Democratic primary uh, in the Demo- for Democrats in the general election. They were planning on staying home, were generally uninterested in voting, but that decision seems to have motivated more Democrats right now in polling to consider voting this November as opposed to not voting. So I think that's going to have a large impact. I think some of the final impact on the election will be some of these bills that we're looking about now, uh, Inflation Reduction Act involving everything from climate change to prescription drugs costs, I think will have some effect on the election. And you'll see certain events, I think, in coming months, uh, continuing around the transportation and infrastructure package that passed and events as we start to see that infrastructure actually being built. And in certain markets, this recently passed CHIPS Act, which is basically all the microchips and bringing that industry to the United States and science in certain sort of high-tech areas. I think that will have a large impact on going into November. I think the final thing to look at is how the turnout will be in November will be what sort of October surprise comes along. Are there going to be international incidents that have big impact? Uh, Obviously, the United States taking out the head of Al-Qaeda is that sort of like last minute impact. I think on that, because it's taken place this August, it probably does not have a lasting impact on the election come November. But if that sort of thing happened a week or two before the election, would also have a big impact on the election in November. So international affairs can always jump in. Obviously, the war in Ukraine continues to go on. And so if that heats up, that can have an impact on election. Most Americans now are supportive of the U.S. involvement in the war in Ukraine and continue to arm the Ukrainians. But that's also because there hasn't been as much personal impact. If Americans start to feel it more, you know, some of that in gas prices, other of, of food costs and things like that, that that's going to have an impact going into the November elections. So I think we'll get a slightly clearer picture after Labor Day of how the American public feels, particularly after some of these issues like legislation passing, uh, like the Dobbs decision sort of comes baked into the general election and who's planning a vote, get a clearer picture of how the election's looking after Labor Day. I would say right now, it looks like the Republicans would take the House of Representatives by how much I think is a big question. I think that's anywhere from 10 to 30 seats. Uh, Remember, historically, the average is 40 seats, but I would say 10 to 30. And then honestly, the Senate is harder to predict. Currently, the Senate, as we know, is 50-50. There are many competitive races going on, including several open seats in Pennsylvania, particularly is going to be very competitive. Democrats are defending seats in Georgia, Arizona, which we spoke about today, Nevada, uh, which is going to be a very competitive election. And then we also expect on the Republican side in Wisconsin it to be a very competitive election. So I think those are the Senate seats that will decide the outcome of the Senate. And really, at this point, it could go either way. And so I, I, we'll get a clearer picture after Labor Day how that looks. And just to emphasize how difficult it is with trying to project some of these things, I'm going to use another state example of what we saw in the primaries and turnout to show just kind of the division, even within the parties, within states of how we're seeing things. And so 
I do agree with Chris that we're going to see a Republican House and the Senate is just too close to call right now. But I just want to emphasize, like I said, how divided some of the states are within their parties, within their borders. So in Michigan, it's another great example where Representative Meyer, he was one of the 10 Republicans who voted to impeach former President Trump as a freshman representative. He lost his primary to a Trump-endorsed conservative, John Gibbs. So again, here we're seeing another Trump-endorsed candidate who is winning their primary. And that was also along with the Trump-endorsed governor candidate winning in Michigan. And when I'm saying Trump-endorsed, I'm saying far right. So trying to make that difference between the moderate Republicans and some of the further right, more conservative Republicans is just an easier way to explain that when I'm saying that they're, they're endorsed by former President Trump. On the Democratic side, and I think this really shows the division even within parties within states, incumbent Representative Rashida Tlaib won her primary, and it wasn't much of a surprise, but when you look at the fact that she is a member of the squad, and so very progressive on the Democratic side, it is a bit of an an interesting dynamic when we see how many of the Trump-endorsed candidates won within the same state. Obviously, we're, we're talking about different parties coming out to vote, but it does make a difference. And then to contrast against Representative Tlaib winning her primary, we then had redistricting in Michigan that led to an incumbent versus incumbent face-off between Representative Stevens and Levin. Stevens, who is much more moderate Democrat, won in her district. And so when we compare that to a very progressive Tlaib in another district winning her primary, shows that even within the same state, we're seeing, you know, a very broad and diverse support for candidates within the spectrum in their own political parties. So this also makes it very difficult to determine what's really going to spurn turnout. Marcy, I'm so glad that you brought up Michigan. This is a big state. NHU has a lot of members in Michigan. Hallie Stevens versus Andy Levin race, which was two incumbent members of Congress going against each other. HUPAC, the political action committee of NHU, does donate to Haley Stevens. And we worked with her on many issues from Medicare Advantage to the private market. Andy Levin has been a Medicare for all supporter. So the PAC was very supportive of Haley Stevens in that primary. And so we were very happy to see Haley get through. And our office works very closely with Haley Stevens in there, defeating Andy Levin, who was a Medicare for all supporter and probably one of the most passionate members of that in the Medicare for all caucus. Again, I think this is another important area of why NHU's political action committees is so important and really getting involved in these races to make sure that looking out for the interest of the private health insurance market and backing candidates who are likely to back the private insurance market where you can continue to have a choice in the type of insurance that you're looking for. So before we conclude today, let's give folks a quick update on Senate Democrats' reconciliation package since we spoke last week. We will provide greater details on the healthcare happy hour once the package is finalized, but the Build Back Better Act has a new name. Is that correct? Yes. So now the legislation is called the Inflation Reduction Act. I hesitate to talk about this topic too 
much because by the time you're listening to this, it's odds are it's changed in some form in the Senate. So where we are in the process is Senator Manchin and Majority Leader Schumer unveiled the Inflation Reduction Act, does deal with various global warming, energy policies, actually also energy access and drilling policies in West Virginia, things that Senator Manchin insisted upon. In the healthcare side, it is, again, still the prescription drugs, including the ability of Medicare to negotiate some prescription drugs, three years of the ACA tax credits, and delays of some things like the Trump administration drug rebate rule are all part of that package. Where we stand now is it is still with the Senate parliamentarian. She needs to decide if everything in there falls under what we call the board rules, which is basically the rules that determine what reconciliation is about. And if you're allowed to use the process of only needing a majority to pass it in the Senate, that is still ongoing, uh, particularly when it comes to the pharmaceutical side. That's where they're particularly looking at. In those rules, you can only be affecting either federal spending or federal revenue. You can't be changing policy. And so that's, we think, on the prescription drug, we'll be looking at the closest. So that continues to go on. At some point, the legislation will actually go to the Senate floor. They take place in a process called Motorama, where everybody's allowed to offer amendments for 24 hours to the legislation. We expect many amendments, particularly from the Republican side of the aisle, to the legislation. When that is up, that finally ends in possible final passage of the legislation, which again, I said, only needs a majority vote in the Senate. The way this is currently playing out time-wise, I don't really see this vote for final passage coming until either late Friday or honestly well into the weekend because of how long this whole process is taking between the parliamentarian needing to rule on certain pieces, continue negotiations with Senator Sinema, and the sheer process of how long the Senate takes to do legislation, including the ability to amend the legislation on the Senate floor, and the Republicans will be looking to use all their opportunities available to them and offer all sorts of amendments that put Democrats in awkward positions, that, that this could take quite some time. And of course, if the language changes too much from what the House passed, then it will have to go back to the House Of course, the House is on their August recess. Speaker Pelosi is in Taiwan, as I think we all know. So I don't think I'm the only one who's hoping we get this passed within the next couple of of days to be able to move forward and have some certainty, especially on that three-year extension of the American Rescue Plan increase in subsidies on the exchanges. But the worst case scenario is that the Senate changes the language so much that the, the House needs to vote on it. And we have to wait for them to come back uh, from August recess. But I think everyone's holding their breath here in Washington for, for a vote this weekend. Yeah, I think when the Senate passes it, the House will have to vote. I think that actually, though, under current rules can happen in a much more efficient way. I think Speaker Pelosi can bring them back. And remember, currently the House has proxy voting where other people can vote for members of the House. So I suspect that she will want to bring them back fairly quickly, but many of them might not come back in person and will give their proxy to other people's vote. That will allow us to continue to have this happen in August. And I think that's important, as Marcy talked about, is for the ACA tax credit pieces, because we are headed towards open enrollment. The carriers need to figure in the tax credits into the plan, particularly when they're looking at, with the actuaries, putting the plans together and looking at who the risk pool will be. It is now time for the NHU Healthcare Happy Hour Toast of the Week. Marcy, who are we toasting to this week? This week, we are toasting in honor of Representative Jackie Wolarski of Indiana. Earlier this week, 
her car traveling in Indiana with two of her aides, Emma Thompson, who was 28, and Zachary Potts, who was 27, collided with another car. And all passengers were killed in the impact of this car crash. Representative Wolarski was a champion of NEHU, supporting us by supporting employer-sponsored health insurance, supporting us in our fight against Medicare for all, while also supporting the current Medicare system and Medicare beneficiaries. She will be missed not only by NEHU and our members of Indiana, but many Americans across the country. Cheers. Thank you for joining us for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour, the official podcast of the National Association of Health Underwriters. For more information on NAHU's government affairs efforts or to become a member, visit NAHU.org.